All right, Philippians 2, beginning at verse 1. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And you may be seated. It seems like uh, recently, in the last six months or so, we've been hearing a lot from doctors. They're the experts. And so I'd like to start off today's sermon with a quote from a doctor. One day making tracks in the prairie of Prax came a north-going Zax and a south-going Zax. And it happened that both of them came to a place where they bumped there they stood, foot to foot, face to face. Look here now, the north-going Zach said, I say, you're blocking my path. You're right in my way. I'm a north-going Zach, and I always go north. Get out of my way now and let me go forth. Who's in whose way, snapped the south-going Zach. I always go south, making south-going tracks. So you're in my way, and I ask you to move. And let me go south in my south-going groove. Then the north-going Zax puffed his chest up with pride. I never, he said, take a step to one side. And I'll prove to you that I won't change my ways if I have to keep standing here 59 days. And I'll prove to you, yelled the south-going Zax, that I can stand here in the prairie of Prax for 59 years. For I live by a rule that I learned as a boy back in south-going school. Never budge. That's my rule. Never budge in the least. Not an inch to the west, not an inch to the east. I'll stay here, not budging. I can and I will, if it makes you and me and the whole world stand still. Well, of course, the world didn't stand still. The world grew. In a couple of years, a new highway came through, and they built it right over those two stubborn Zacks and left them there standing, unbudged, in their tracks. Dr. Seuss. When Paul wrote letters to the churches uh, from prison, typically he attempted to correct their theology um, the Galatians, Paul warned, were following a false gospel. And he addresses idleness in Thessalonica. Uh, but in Philippi, uh, he, there doesn't seem to be any false theology that Paul needs to address. 
There's no glaring sin, and there's no wrong theology that needs to be corrected. Paul's letter to the Philippians doesn't seem to be addressed to an immature church uh, that was headed for disaster. Rather, we can gather from this, this letter that Paul enjoyed the fellowship of the Philippian church, and he valued their friendship very much. And it appears that he viewed them as a very mature, sound uh, church that was on the right path. And he obviously appreciated them very much. So apart from some few general warnings in chapter 3, there's no real theological problem that, that Paul needs to address here. And maybe most of us feel the same way about us here at Weavertown. Of course, we're not perfect, but surely our theology and our practice, and our outward way of life, um, you know, the things that really matter are right on track with the Word of God. But in Philippi, Paul uncovers sin in the church. This mature, theologically sound and caring church had a big problem. And he clearly uncovers it and names it for what it is. And that's what we want to do here today. We want to look at these eight verses in Philippians chapter 2. And we will probably be tempted to think about other churches or other people. But don't. I want us to look inward. Some Sundays we look outward. But I want us to look inward in, in our church here and in our own hearts. Let's think about our sin here. Let's think about my sin in my heart. So we're not discussing errant theology today, and I'm not saying that we don't have any here, but we're not discussing that today. We want to look at our attitude. Attitude precedes and gives direction to our action. So we're not addressing the, the outward or the end result, but rather we want to look under the surface, cut straight to the heart, the attitude. Unity of the Spirit. And I'm not talking about uniformity. Again, not outward. Uh, we don't need to agree on everything, but we need to have a spirit of unity, an attitude of unity. Paul addresses in, uh, I think, every church, uh, the issue of unity. It's important to him. And we'll look later at how it's important to the Lord as well, of course. So it should be important to us. Spiritual unity. So here in chapter 2 in Philippians, Paul begins by addressing the motives for spiritual unity. Why is unity important? So let's take a look in verse 1. The first reason he gives to maintain unity is because there is consolation in Christ. I think the original Greek language for the word consolation is the idea of coming alongside or encouraging assisting. And he's saying, if Christ has come alongside me, if he has encouraged me, if I have benefited from the encouragement that comes from knowing Christ, then surely, and by all means, I should have the attitude of encouraging and blessing others around me. In John 17, Jesus prays for our unity, that they may be one, even as we are one. So it is Christ's desire that we be unified. Now, if Christ requests that we maintain unity, are we not walking in disobedience when our sinful, selfish nature causes us to walk in discord? 
And this is a vital point that I want all of us to understand, that the sin of disunity is in direct disobedience. And it's not so much disobedience against the church or against a creed or a man-made religious system. When I am not unified, I am walking in disobedience to the very relationship between me and the Lord. And Paul here is saying, if you have received encouragement and blessing and constant cheering and grace and wisdom from Christ, are you not then stimulated by Christ's influence, by his outpouring of generosity in your life? And can we not give back to him what is most precious to him, which is the unity of his followers? When we walk in discord, we are not so much sinning against the church or others, but we are sinning against Christ. When our relationships around us are crumbling and unity is out of reach, I suggest that it is a direct result of a poor relationship with Christ. So the sin of discord is a sin against Christ, not his doctrine, not his law, but against the very relationship that we have with Christ. This is personal. When we disregard Christ's desire for his church to be unified, And it's important to know that this is sin and to name it for what it is. The second reason to maintain unity, we find also in verse 1, because there is comfort of love. And this uh, original Greek word for comfort is a a gentle cheering. So this is uh, a bit more intimate than encouragement. This is Christ coming close to us and whispering encouragement in our ear. If Christ has encouraged you and if he has even drawn close to you and intimately provided gentle cheering and comforting words of friendship because of this intimacy that we have with Christ and the comfort we have received from him from the time we are saved, should we not have an attitude of unity? Those of you who are married, can you imagine a relationship where one partner gave unconditional love and grace and provided encouragement and the other spouse did not respond at all, but was unloving, disloyal, and had complete disregard for the relationship? Spiritual disunity is just that cold and disgusting. It's a sin against the very relationship of Christ. Don't try to convince yourself that you can maintain an attitude of discord and disunity and still maintain a healthy relationship to Christ. You can't. You're in direct violation of the relationship and are divorced from the very desire Christ has for your life. If you are receiving the comfort of love from the close friendship with Christ, then how can we not live in spiritual unity with our brothers? David fell into adultery and murder, and he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband. He sinned against the nation he was leading, and he sinned against God's law. But he said in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned. And that's, that's every sin. It's a sin against Christ, and the sin of discord and disunity is no different. It's important that we recognize this sin for what it is. 
First John 4.20 says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? When we have taken all the grace and blessing and comfort of love that Christ offers, and we turn around and violate that relationship by our attitude of discord, it's like we are Judas, and we have be betrayed the one that we love with a kiss. Paul says that the third reason to maintain unity is because we experience fellowship of the Spirit. The first two motives or reasons for unity that we discussed reference Christ, and the second two refer to the Holy Spirit. The word fellowship is the famous Greek word koinonia, which we get the word communion. So it refers to partnership or communion or closeness, sharing. Through the fellowship and communion of the Spirit, we have received a lot. And you can find various lists. I found a list of 70 things that the Holy Spirit has done for us. I'll just name a few. You have the indwelling of the Spirit. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You've received all his benefits. You've been sealed by the Spirit. He has become your guarantor of eternal inheritance. You're filled with the Spirit. You're empowered and enabled for service by the Spirit. And you've been gifted by the Spirit. You are content, continually cleansed by the Spirit. The Spirit is always praying for you with groanings that cannot be uttered, in which he prays unceasingly for you according to the will of God. Paul is saying because you're connected to the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit has connected you to Christ, because of all that the Spirit has provided in regeneration and sanctification and guaranteeing your eternal glory and praying for you unceasingly, because the Holy Spirit is gifting you and filling you and producing fruit in you and teaching you. Because he is enabling you to resist temptation and because the Holy Spirit has given you the word. Because he has given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. Because he has done all of these things for us. Will we still stab him in the back with our attitude of discord and disunity? Failing to maintain unity is a sin of defiance and ingratitude against the Holy Spirit. The fourth reason Paul gives why unity is important follows the third one very closely. Because of the bowels and mercies of the Spirit. Still speaking of the Spirit here, as the previous point was. Now, in modern-day language, we, when referring to our feelings for others, we generally don't use the word bowels. Uh, we, we tend to say that our feelings come from the heart, which is probably just as inaccurate as what they were back then. But the meaning, though, is, is clear, and this is interesting. The Spirit is filled with affection and feelings for us. Isn't that amazing? Think about the Holy Spirit interceding for us, and the Spirit feels deep affection for us as he's doing that. In a very small way, it may be like a parent and a child. The parent prays for that child and has a deep connection and affection for the child and prays for that child in a way that is far above the understanding of the child because the parent knows what's best for him. And the Holy Spirit does that and much more for us. He prays for us according to the will of God beyond our understanding. 
Were it not for the intercession and indwelling of the Spirit, we would, of course, be lost. The Spirit has deep feelings for us. He is praying to the Father in the will of Christ. And so we receive the things that the Spirit requests. And then he adds the word mercies. We receive tender mercies and compassion from Almighty God through the Spirit. And we, of course, admit freely that we have been given way more than we deserve. But he pours out his grace and his mercy and fellowship through the Spirit because he feels strongly and is affectionate toward us. Paul is not reminding us to be unified so that we can maintain a system of belief or so that we can maintain a uniform appearance. Rather, our motive for unity, Paul says, is a personal, close relationship that we receive from Christ. He longs for us. His thoughts are filled with tenderness and full of mercies toward us. He is cheering for us, and he helps us stand again when we fall. When we sin, he forgives And when we need strength or wisdom, he is there. Always supplying us with compassion and mercy, way beyond what we deserve. And when we fail to do that to others, in a way that promotes spiritual unity, we are defiling and disregarding the relationship between me and Jesus Christ. It's crucial that we see our discord for what it is. A violation and sin against the relationship of Christ. So Paul calls the Philippian church to unity, not by force, but reminding them of the tender, compassionate, loving relationship that they have received from Christ. It's the highest level of motivation for this church. And he's basically saying, freely you have received, so freely give. This is our motivation to promote unity and maintain unity in our church because of the relationship that we have with Christ. And then he appeals to them on just a slightly lower level. He brings in his personal relationship with them. And remember that uh, Paul is in prison. And so he says, fulfill my joy. This is also what he wants for them personally. It's what Christ wants for the church, but this is what Paul wants for, him as, for them as well. And Paul says, you know, in our relationship, just between you and me, I, it would bring joy to my heart to see you walk in perfect unity at Philippi. And Paul, writing from prison, speaks a lot about joy in Philippians. And I think it's because of the close relationship that he had with them. He didn't want to burden them. He wanted to encourage them. And he didn't want them to feel sorry for him while he was in prison. And I believe this church was worried about Paul. He had wanted to send a letter through Epaphroditus, but he became sick and he was delayed. And so this church was concerned about how Paul was was doing. And so Paul wanted them to rest assured that he was just fine and he wanted their joy to be full. So Paul thanks them uh, over and over again in the book of Philippians. Uh, From the beginning to the end, it has thankfulness and joy written all over it. And it's expressing his deep compassion for them. And it's all about his relationship with them. 
Don't worry about me. Be happy. And this is Paul's heart for his church. He first appeals to them on their relationship with Christ. And then he asks them that uh, if they would maintain unity, it would bring him joy as well. His whole appeal for unity is based on relationship. Relationship with Christ and his personal relationship with them. And I've said numerous times before, and it's worth repeating, that when we fail to maintain unity, it is in direct opposition to the relationship that we have with Christ. Stop excusing your sin of discord and disunity as a sin against a system or a church or against your brother. It is very much between you and the Lord. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 27, that whether he is absent with them or from them or present with them, he wants to hear about them being unified in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in Ephesians 4, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So after looking at why unity is important, Paul moves on to tell us a little bit what unity looks like. What is unity? Well, unity is being like-minded. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, which was full of discord, and he said this, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul asked them to be united in their judgment. And I think he's referring to how they view things. So it's underneath the surface. It's their attitude, their disposition, their mindset. They're to be united in this area. So in the chapter we're studying today in verse 5, he says, let this mind be in you. Some translations use the word attitude. Let this attitude be in you. So he's not necessarily addressing them about the facts or circumstances or action, but he's primarily calling them to have the same attitude, the same disposition or mindset. Now, if we look out in the world around us, we, we understand that unity of judgment, unity of attitude, being like-minded, uh, especially in a political atmosphere, appears to be impossible. And, and I'll be honest, when I look at my own life and I look at the crowd here, it, it would almost seem like it's impossible for us to be unified. How, how can this size of a group be like-minded? Is it possible? And the answer is, it's not. It's not possible in, our, in ourselves. We cannot even imagine this, uh, you know, in our own power. And so we desperately need the influence of the Spirit. After all, this unity of the Spirit is, is that. It is unity 
that comes from the Spirit. It's his deal. It's not ours. It's not something that we can do. It's the unity of the Spirit. It's what he is. It's not what we are. So if we want to be like-minded, we must think on the things that the Spirit thinks about. We must think like the Spirit. We need to think outside of our box and above our box on a heavenly level. Romans speaks about setting our minds and affections on things above, things of the Spirit where there is life. Otherwise, it leads to death. And if you really think about it, it is impossible for the Spirit to be in conflict. So the more that we move away from our flesh and the closer we become to following the Spirit and allowing Him to completely fill us, the closer we come to spiritual unity. The key is, I believe, being emptied of self and full of the Spirit. Spirit-filled believers will possess the mind of Christ and have the attitude of Christ. And if two people that are completely filled with the Spirit will not have conflict. They may have disagreement, but the underlying attitude will be toward the Spirit and drawn to the Spirit. Many times we view unity as, and you've probably heard this illustration, marbles in a bag. So they're all in a bag close together. They're unified. Well, it's a very thin shell that holds those marbles together. And as soon as there's a small break or tear, you lose your marbles. Spiritual unity is, is not like that. It's more like a magnet with uh, metal fragments and shavings that are pulled into it. They're drawn to the center. The Holy Spirit is that magnet. It's a, maybe a poor illustration, but it makes a little bit more sense to view it that way. Romans 12.3 reminds us not to think higher of ourselves, but to think soberly or soundly or objectively. So in our pattern of thinking, in our attitude, we must remember that our agenda and our desires and our space and our turf and all the things that we want to, to keep near and dear to us are pushing in a direction. And it's causing our minds to be corrupted. And too often our judgment is based on our agenda, on me, on myself. Sound judgment and sound mind comes from casting off our agenda and replacing it with Christ's agenda. We understand that if a group of people gathers together and each one has their own agenda, there's no unity. But if each arrives being filled with and under the influence of the mind of Christ, then we can move forward in unity. And again, in Corinthians, Paul says that they couldn't reach this because they were fleshy. They were following the flesh. And that's why they couldn't reach this level of unity. They were carnal and not spiritual. Carnality collides with the spirit and will always cause, cause discord and disunity. In Colossians 3, after explaining to them what they should get rid of in the flesh, he says this in verse 12, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. 
And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. And then he goes on to say, let the word of God dwell in you richly. Now these verses provide an amazing directive for believers to live. Are we even close to achieving this model? And if not, why not? When we're not unified, and if my life is a picture of discord and disunity, I think it is because I have not allowed the gospel to enter my heart. Let the, word of, let the word of God dwell in you richly. We know the word of God, and we can even preach the word of God. But have I let the word of God dwell in me? Has it made an impact on my life? Is it living there? If it is, I'm going to be moving away from discord and disunity and moving toward the Holy Spirit and the unity that he provides. And I fear that when we enter discord and disunity, it is because we have not allowed the gospel to enter our hearts and to cleanse us from the inside out. Unity, Paul says, is also having the same love. Having the same level of love for all. Now, this is not an emotional love that Paul is calling us to. You can't possibly be emotionally connected to everyone on an equal level. But this is a sacrificial love, a serving love. Uh, allowing the love that you receive from Christ flow through you freely to others around us. Sometimes we refuse to forgive those who sin against us. We hold grudges. We become bitter. We are full of envy and jealousy, and our own ambitions get in the way of forgiveness. They prevent us from allowing the love of God to flow through us. And when we refuse to forgive others, I wonder how we can even call ourselves followers of Christ. If we follow Christ, we will forgive. We will love you cannot follow Christ and remain in hostility toward others because Christ will not lead you there. Thirdly, in verse 2, unity is being of one accord and of one mind. And I think this word is probably made up by Paul. The Greek word uh, means one souled, being knit together with one soul. And again, Paul is talking about relationship. Uh, you've heard of the phrase soul brothers, being closely knit together by your compassion for each other. And when we are united in our passions and desires and ambitions, we are united in our soul. But when our own ambitions and desires and motives get in the way of that, we collide with the Spirit. When you have someone who is deeply passionate about Christ's church moving forward and proclaiming the gospel and wanting the whole world to see Jesus, then you have another person that is wanting the whole world to know that they have been offended, there will be a collision. Where there is one driving passion to lift up Christ, there will be unity. And when there are varied passions to lift up and promote self, the unity will dissolve. So Paul in verse 1 helps us to understand the need for unity. It's a sin against Christ without it. And then in verse 2 he points out what unity is. And thirdly, in verses 3 and 4, we want to look at how unity is achieved. How do we achieve 
unity. The first one we see here is don't do anything from strife or vainglory. Do nothing from selfish motives. Selfish ambition and promotion leads to strife, uh, division, rivalry, contention. Um, we, we understand that. Quarrels and fighting. In Galatians, selfishness is listed as a work of the flesh, which we understand to be at odds with the Spirit. And we constantly need to guard against promoting our personal calls, our own agenda, and protecting our own turf. Selfishness is fleshy. Unity is spiritual. Secondly, if we want unity, we need to, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Now, this is kind of a correction to the first one, which was a negative. Don't do anything through strife or vainglory, but let each esteem others lower. Each esteem others better than themselves. So Paul is saying, don't do this, but do this. And I think Paul is indicating here that, that unity is born from humility. Unity is born from hum- humility. And I, I found it fascinating to learn that in the Old Testament, humility is not a virtue. Humility is lowly. It's debase. It's, or it's base. It's the bottom. It's something that is a condescending term. It's not desirable. But Christ modeled humility when he was here. And so in the New Testament, humility then becomes a virtue to be sought after, to be followed. It's no longer a disgraceful term, but it's a virtue. Now sometimes, or maybe always, it is difficult to see others as better than myself. Now, uh, let's just do a a little exercise. Of all the people you know, of all the minds that you know, of all the hearts that you can see into, which one scares you the most? Who has the filthiest, most conceited, most corrupt mind that you can see into? Whose heart is the darkest? Of all the hearts that you can see, Whose is the darkest? Well, we know that we can see people's actions, and we can see the way they live, but we cannot see into the heart and into the mind of those around us. And so we have to admit, as we look into our own heart, and as I look into my own mind, I don't want you to see what's there. Sometimes it's dark, and sometimes it's corrupt. And it's the most corrupt mind and heart that I can see. And so that should help me to place myself below you. We should see ourselves as less than others, esteem ourselves less than those around us. Paul we view as a great hero of faith, but he said that he is the least of all apostles and not even worthy to be called one. He understood the need to see himself as lower. When we view the depravity of our own hearts, we should easily be able to see that there are others who are better than us. Then Paul says in verse 4, if you want unity, don't promote your own interests. And this is a high calling, um, to hold up other people's goals and interests above your own. 
And, and I think this is a very general statement that Paul gives us. Uh, it's not necessarily as specific, but as you interact with people, uh, care more about their interests and their goals rather than promoting your own. And finally, to promote unity, Paul says in verse 5, take on the mind of Christ. And as I said earlier, that unity is born from humility. And Paul explains the humility of Christ so well in these few verses. And my final thoughts will be on the humility of Christ, who is our perfect model. In order to achieve unity, we must... We must follow humility. We must be humble. And Christ gives us the perfect model here in verses 6 through 8. So in the final moments, we're going to look at verses 6 through 8. And picture a stairway leading down from heaven to earth. In verse 6, we see the first step of Christ's humility. Uh, and, and I don't think the King James Version is maybe the best translation here. Um, to understand what is being implied, but other, ver- other versions imply that Christ did not hold tightly his equality with God. In other words, he held loosely his position as equal with God. He allowed it to fall through his fingers, so to speak. He didn't hold it with a clenched fist. As an equal member of the Trinity, he does not hold tightly to that position. He allows it to be taken away from him. He's willing to humble himself and allow himself to be put under God the Father. So he didn't hold with a clenched fist the rights of equality with the Father. No one ever lowered themselves from as lofty a position as that of Christ. In verse 7, the humble descent of Christ continued when he emptied himself. He emptied himself. He gave up his reputation. Now few of us know what it means to give up our reputation. Few of us are willing to give up our reputation, especially to the extent that Christ did. He gave up heavenly glory and authority. He now needed to submit to the Father. He gave up his divine nature and heavenly riches. He did this all for my sake. He became alienated from God when he became sin for us. And it is an immeasurable step down from heaven's courts and position as part of the Godhead to that of a servant. That is a long way down. Not only that, he became... I'm sorry, we we can't come close to comprehending how far down Christ came when he humbled himself and descended from heaven. And again, it's a sin against Christ after all that he has given up for me, when I cannot give up one little thing for the sake of unity that he so longs for. His descent from the heavenlies included being a man with all the limitations of humanness. And not only that, but he came in the lowest form a human can, a servant, a slave. He truly emptied himself of his reputation and status which is precisely what we must do to maintain unity. It was a huge step down for God. We understand a little bit how much he gave up 
And it's a difficult step for us to lose our reputation for the sake of another. But Christ did that, and he calls us to do the same. And it is a sin against Christ to not follow his model. On his descent, on the stairway of humility, it's important to note that not only did he begin his decline from the loftiest heights, but he descended far below normal human status. He took on the form of a slave. Not only that, he took on death. And not only that, he died the most horrific death that the human mind can comprehend. Being stripped and hung to die, full of the sin of the world, on a cross, on a hill for all to see. This level of humility, Paul says, is our model of humility in order to obtain unity. Until we reach this level of humility, we will always struggle with unity. And almost in despair, I look around, and I look into my own heart, and I wonder if it's even possible. And like I said before, it's not. It's not possible on our own strength. We can never manufacture this, this humility, this level of humility that we're to follow. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And how it must grieve the Spirit when we are so unyielding and unbending in our personal pursuits with our egos and our agendas. I can't imagine the pain that I have inflicted to the heart of Christ when I have so many times neglected to follow his example of humility for the sake of unity. As I have thought about Paul's letter to the Philippians, I have been deeply challenged. And I think that all of us, collectively as a church and individually in our own hearts, we need to look inside, inside our hearts, to check our attitudes. We need to go into the corners of our hearts and push out all the selfish ambitions and allow Christ to fill us. And we need to repent from the sin of discord against Christ. You may say that we are a mature church, but when I think about the sin of discord represented in my heart, and I think about the possibility of that same sin being represented in each of your hearts, without the hand of God and without his mercy, we are truly hopelessly lost. But Christ has provided a way for us to be right with him through the Holy Spirit, through the gift of Jesus Christ, and we need to follow his example of humility. We need to empty ourselves of ourselves and allow him to fill us. The sin of the mature church is the sin of discord and disunity. And here at Weavertown, we need to humble ourselves, and I need to humble myself and wipe this sin out of our presence. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, thank you for Paul's letter to the Philippians. Thank you for the way that he laid out so clearly a path for us to follow, a model for us to follow. And forgive me and forgive us for not following the model of humility that you so graciously provided for us. Your example of giving up your heavenly status and descending to earth in the lowest form and being willing to die and take on sin 
is a tremendous example to us, and we have many times failed to even do that in a very small scale. And we, we need to repent of that, and we want to repent of that. Help us to see that in our hearts. Help us to open our hearts and look inside and see areas where we can clean out the corners of our hearts of selfishness and pride and replace it with the Spirit who will provide humility and grace and mercies for us to be unified. We want to be unified so that we can promote your gospel and shine your light in our community. And so help us to do this, this coming week and throughout um, the rest of this church's life. I pray that you would guide us in this and give us the strength. In Jesus' name, amen.